Pop culture often gets pretty interesting in moments when a generation gets old enough to not only consume media, but also take a hand in crafting it. These times often give one an impression of what cultural forces have molded a generation and also what values the generation has absorbed. Granted, no one piece of pop culture can embody an entire generation's perspective. We're talking about millions of people with a wide spectrum of backgrounds, beliefs, and experiences. And while being born within the same 25-year time period gives some common signifiers, it's hardly enough for a singular and convenient shorthand despite a lot of people's efforts otherwise. And that doesn't even get into who mass media decides to elevate onto platforms and who it doesn't. That all being conceded, the mid-2010s marks the earliest period where millennials were given uh, significant leeway to write, produce, direct, and perform their own stories with minimal interference from gatekeeping older folks. Just about every significant creative entity on Over the Garden Wall was born in the 1980s. This miniseries is, among other things, a solid window into how a substantial number of American millennials see the world. Of course, Over the Garden Wall was marketed to and embraced by Gen Z kids who are now in their early 20s. I think it'll be interesting to see how creative Zoomers internalize this program and how it'll influence the stories that they decide to tell when it's their turn. Generational transitions and how they affect our perspective of history is baked into the subtext of Over the Garden Wall, and we'll be talking about that and a bunch of other themes over the course of this recording. My name is Ryan, this is a real deep dive. Alright, joining me for this one is my sister Cheryl. Hello! And this was your pick. Oh, yes it was! I mean, sort of, I kind of twisted your arm into it, like it was your turn to pick the thing, and you couldn't think of anything, and it's like, well, you keep trying to push me into watching Over the Garden Wall, why don't we do that? I will push anybody into watching Over the Garden Wall. Everybody. So, uh, why does this one speak to you? And when did you first encounter it? Did you watch it when it was new, or like a year or two after? No, I watched it when it came out. It's beautiful, it's a unique art style, and you weren't wrong. When I first saw it, the whole time I was like, oh hey, our historian sibling would be really into this. I tried to force you all to watch it. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those things where I knew I was going to like it, and everybody was like, oh, this makes me think it's your kind of jam, Ryan. Why aren't you already into this? How did I get to this before you did? <laughs> and I don't know, it was one of those things I kept backburnering, but um, you pushed it for the podcast, so here it is. I just saw it for the first time. How are you feeling? What do you think? Did you like it? Yeah, I was into it. Right off! I was expecting to be into it. I have no reason to think that I wasn't going to be into this. I mean, Elijah Wood and, like, fun, like, Memento Mori, like, what? I can't even just, like, use the pastoral. Mm-hmm. Oh, it was so pretty! Oh my gosh, the tea episode. That horse. Yeah, I think we laughed for, like, at least an uninterrupted minute where she's just like, I want to steal. <laughs> so good. Alright, I'm not going to recap all ten episodes, but I will say that it follows two half-brothers, Wirt and Greg. They have the same mother. Uh, they become lost in a strange forest that is called the Unknown. To find their way home, the two must travel across the seemingly supernatural forest with the occasional help of wandering mysterious and other types of forces, including the elderly woodsman and uh, Beatrice, an irritable bluebird who used to be human. Uh, she initially joins the boys to guide them to a woman called Adelaide, who can supposedly undo the curse on Beatrice and her family and also show the half-brothers the way back to where they came from. 
Uh, Wirt, the older brother, is a worry-prone teenager who would rather keep to himself than to have to make any kind of a decision. He's he, he spends a lot of the series waffling. He's um he's Elijah Wood, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, that, that that's the thing that he has to overcome, and it ties into why they're in the unknown to begin with. Being Elijah Wood. Yeah. <laughs> I was going for the waffling thing, but yes, also Elijah Wood tends to be um, stuck on a lot of wandering journeys. Mm-hmm. Word's passions include playing the clarinet and writing poetry, but uh, he tends to keep these things private out of fear of being ridiculed for it. Conversely, his little brother Greg is more naive and carefree and... Um, Outgoing, sure of himself, delightful. <laughs> and all these things are to Word's chagrin. Greg, while on the journey, carries along a frog that he found and keeps trying to name him, and that turns into a running gag. There's a period where he's calling him uh, Cucumber King. Uh, Paging Dr. Cucumber, Kitty, also Wart, George Washington. And Ben Franklin. Yep. Well, stalking the main cast through their adventures is the Beast. Oh, that voice! An ancient creature who leads lost souls astray until they lose their hope and willpower, thus turning into Edelwood trees. Things take a turn when they discover Adelaide and find out that she intends only to enslave the boys. She convinced Beatrice to uh, lead them to her in order to, you know, get her turned back into humans. And uh, that causes Wara to grab Greg and abandon her after they escape from Adelaide. And uh, you know, Melt she... her with fresh air was so good. <laughs> I'm just going to stuff their heads full of wood and have child servants. Uh, John Cleese with your, with your old lady voice. It was so good. <laughs> I loved him, though, as the rich guy, which yeah. is totally, like, not, like, that's a filler episode, but I can't help it. It's my favorite. Now, in the penultimate episode, we find out that Wirt and Greg are actually from modern times, or modern-ish times. Mixtapes are still a thing. Right? I'm like, I think that's, like, the 50s. You know, they entered the unknown after falling into a pond on Halloween. Uh, Wirt attempting to take back an embarrassing poetry and clarinet tape that he made for a girl that he has a crush on had followed her to a ghost story party in a graveyard where a police officer scared him and Greg into jumping over the cemetery's garden wall. Eh? That's the title. <laughs> <laughs> on the other side of the wall, they landed on a train track, and to save Greg from being hit, Wirt pulled him into the nearby pond, knocking them both unconscious in the process and sending them to the sort of ethereal realm between life and death. And also, like, yeah, potentially a watery grave, but better than, like, a smushied grave. In the final episode, Wirt saves Greg from being turned into an Edelwood tree by the beast, and at the end of the episode, Wirt and Greg wake up in a hospital back in their hometown. As the scene ends, Greg's frog, which swallowed a magic bell in the unknown, begins to glow, suggesting that their experience in the unknown may have been real and not some kind of hallucination. Dun, dun, dun! It's very Wizard of Oz, but I like it. The series ends with a montage of how Wirt and Greg affected the inhabitants of the unknown. All the minor supporting characters and what's happened to them. Beatrice got to be human. And then Auntie Whisper's charge was um, the woodsman's daughter? Did I get that right? She looks the same. I don't think she's meant to be the woodsman's daughter, but... She's Yeah, they have a similar character design. Yeah. Anyways, that's a basic recap of what happened. Although, yeah, once again, I'm not going to go into the individual episodes. You weren't crazy about the schoolhouse one. I, I thought it was good. It's 
fine, but like if I've watched that um, show like maybe like ten times, so like eventually, like, ah, you can skip that one. I think my favorite's the riverboat one with the frogs. I so thought that I called that. Yeah. My favorite is a hundred percent the T one. I've gone mad with love or madness. <laughs> Right, for the development of the series, uh, Over the Garden Wall was first conceived by animator Patrick McHale in 2004 when he was fresh out of school and working as a storyboard artist on The Marvelous Misadventures of Flapjack. Oh my god, I can totally see that. Uh, yes, while Flapjack never attained a mass audience of Spongebob or Powerpuff Girls stature, it proved influential on in how many of its personnel will go on to much bigger things after Flapjack was cancelled in 2010. Uh, the creators of Adventure Time, Regular Show, Grab Gravity Falls and Over the Garden Wall all cut their teeth on <laughs> Flapjack and will borrow many elements of that program's madcap surreal tone. In some ways, Flapjack was the yardbirds of 21st century animation. I feel so, like, seen right now. <laughs> I'm like, yes, all of that! Yeah, I think you're the only person in our social circle who digs Flapjack. No, no, there, Ben also likes it. That's two people. Okay. Two people that you know in your entire life. Uh, Mikhail first pitched the project to Cartoon Network as Tome of the Unknown, which followed two brothers named Walter and Gregory, who sign a Faustian pact with the devil and are charged with finding the titular book, which contains every story ever forgotten. I mean, I would also watch that. Uh, this iteration was much darker than what Over the Garden Wall would become. Uh, Mikhail initially saw it as a Halloween special and then pitched it as like a something that would be like a three-season cartoon show. But he struggled when Cartoon Network asked him to develop it into a film instead. Yeah, I mean, I can see that. Like, it, it, it tells really well as a ten-part mini-episode. Mikhail shelved Tome of the Unknown when he signed on to co-develop Adventure Time with Pendleton Ward. He would soon become one of the show's core writers over the course of its first five seasons. Yeah, again, I can totally see that. <laughs> In 2011, after Adventure Time blew up and became something of the same stature as Spongebob or Powerpuff Girls, Cartoon Network asked Mikhail if he'd like to pitch them his own series. Mikhail dusted off his Tome of the Unknown pitch, polished it up, and got the green light to create a nine-minute pilot. He's talking about uh, the Tome of the Unknown short from 2013. Have you seen it? No, I haven't. I didn't know about it. Yeah, you should look it up on YouTube. Outside of student films, this nine-minute short is the first project Mikhail wrote, storyboarded, and directed without outside supervision. And this version, the two brothers are still searching for the book, but Walter's name has been shortened to work by this period. Elijah Wood and Colin Dean are already cast. Beatrice the Bluebird is being voiced by Natasha Leggero here. Uh, she will be recast with Melanie Linsky for the miniseries. Now, is she the New Zealand actress from um, Two and a Half Men? I don't know if Two and a Half Men, but yeah, she's from New Zealand, so probably. What's surprising about Tome of the Unknown is that almost all of the aesthetic flourishes of Over the Garden Wall are already in place. I mean, aside from a few minor tweaks and like the character design, the color palette, the general atmosphere, uh, the tone, the music, pretty much all of that is developed. It's almost surprising how little of it changed from that nine minute pilot short to the full series. Yeah, I mean, like I feel like the only big change is the book. Mikhail cited the 1890s board game Game of Frog Pond as a key inspiration for the cartoon's look. Have you ever heard of that? I looked it up afterwards, and yeah, I can see it. 
Other influences include Gustav Doré's metal engravings, particularly the ones he did for Don Quixote. Uh, he also cited John Tenniel's pen and ink drawings for Alice in Wonderland, because duh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he mentioned Hans Christian Andersen's The Tinderbox as uh, something that shaped over the garden wall. He's very into 1920s Halloween postcards. Yeah, you can definitely see that. The fucking, oh, sorry, the pumpkin village, though. 1930s rubber hose animation. Yep. Uh, magic lantern slides, silent era sh uh, comedy shorts, medieval grisaille paintings, uh, chromolithography, and photos of New England foliage in autumn, particularly during the 1890s. Oh, yay! Tome of the Unknown was screened at the 20th Austin Film Festival and at the International Children's Film Festival at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. It was an honorable mention at the Ottawa International Animation Festival, and it won a Bruce Corwin Award at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival. Cartoon Network ordered McHale to expand Tome of the Unknown uh, into a larger series after it was successful on the festival circuit. Uh, McHale initially pitched it as an 18-episode series, which uh, Cartoon Network whittled down to a 10-episode miniseries for time and budgetary reasons. This is the very first time the Cartoon Network made a foray into the miniseries format. Okay, I was about to be like, but they did a lot of tiny episode shows. Wait, that's not what you're saying. Never mind. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm keeping up. Art director Nick Cross and supervising director Nate Cash had worked on Tome of the Unknown and were brought on by McHale for the miniseries, which was now called Over the Garden Wall, once McHale dropped the quest for the book concept. He felt that having the brothers be lost in the woods opened up more storytelling possibilities. Oh yeah, I think that's part of why it feels so fun, because they sort of feel like they're wandering aimlessly. Yeah, as opposed to having a MacGuffin hanging over their head the whole time. Other concepts dropped from the series once it was shortened to 10 episodes include a skinless witch character. I'm interested in this. <laughs> and a villain who carves dice from the bones of murdered children. That does sound like a fable. Like, that sounds, that sounds pretty good. Mikhail also axed a running gag where the brothers keep getting transformed into animals. I wonder if that explains that episode that you like with the gorilla costume. Uh, it was important to Mikhail to balance the frightening portions of Over the Garden Wall with lighthearted whimsy, and he really wanted to not let either shade dominate the series as a whole. I think that works really well, especially with the two brothers. Storyboarding was split between two teams in New York and Chicago who were working simultaneously. Mikhail found it difficult to coordinate the two different groups. Not only the distance, but, uh, you know, he's relatively inexperienced. But he largely blamed how idiosyncratic the style of the program was. He had a hard time get, having everybody just sort of, like, unify under this weird-ass palette that he built for them. <laughs> I mean, he pulled it off. They did a great job. One of the more integral components of Over the Garden Wall is undoubtedly the music. Oh, agreed. Mikhail is an opera buff and also a nerd for pre-1950s American folk music. That comes through. <laughs> Over the Garden Wall is filled with melodies and songs based on string band music, ragtime, bluegrass, Dixieland jazz, Mississippi Delta blues, and Chicago jazz and blues vocals. Of particular uh, note is Into the Unknown, uh, the show's theme song. It was composed by Mikhail and sung by Jack Jones, the frog. That voice! Oh, he's also Enoch, right? 
Yeah. Oh, so good. Come Wayward Souls was sung by the operatic bass singer Sam Raimi, who is the beast. Sorry, it's just when I hear Raimi, I'm like, of the Raimis? Not that one. <laughs> it's even spelled different. Okay. A courting song, on the other hand, was composed by the Petrovic uh, Blasting Company and performed by Frank Fairfield. Uh, the score got a physical media release in 2016 with an extended version limited to 1,000 vinyl copies sold at the San Diego Comic Con. I'm not even going to think about how much those are going for on the secondary <laughs> market right now. Uh, the score is very popular on YouTube as one of those chill vibes to study to playlists, as Cheryl already intimated. Oh, yeah! I called it! <laughs> yeah, it's just one of those things for the anime girls doing her homework. Oh, come on. Everybody loves lo-fi beats. <laughs> Everybody. And apparently they're throwing some over-the-garden-wall things onto those lo-fi beats. All right, I guess at this point we should start talking about the cast a little bit. Uh, we have Elijah Wood as Wirt. And uh, interesting that this is the first Wood project we're talking to after like 100 podcast episodes because Elijah Wood's one of your favorite actors, I think. Oh, yeah, no, he's definitely up there. But like a lot of, I mean, he does a good job. Don't get me wrong. I think he's very talented. But I love his interviews. That man is the best nerd and he has bird scream laughs. I did notice one interview where asked about Over the Garden Wall. He's like, I like the music because it makes me want to buy a gramophone. Maybe he doesn't, maybe he's too ashamed and like hasn't yet. He's like, I don't know how to buy one. Yeah, but he's in his 40s now and he can still convincingly play an awkward teenager. I feel like that's because he has like the soul and heart of a child. Like that is just, he's like the purest man ever. You say soul and heart of a child and it's like he keeps it in his cupboard. <laughs> Still in over the garden wall mode. And then we have Colin Dean as Gregory. He's the only non-millennial of note in um, the major cast, aside from the old vets like, you know, John Cleese. Was uh, he a child when he did it? He was a child. As of this recording right now, he's 17. Damn, he was such a good child actor. Good for you. Yeah, he is the heart and soul, getting back to those terms again, of over the garden wall. He just flips every scene he's in. He's never an annoying kid, even though he's annoying word. Right? I know he's so delightful. I'm like, you are the good son. Uh? Uh? Are you referring to the Macaulay Culkin film? Yeah, because Elijah Wood's in that. Oh, yeah, he is. He's the good son. Uh, I haven't seen that since I was the age of the characters in that movie. And that's also a New England movie. Oh, boy. Look at that. We went into a full circle. Yeah, but I like, I like Dean. I like his little songs. I like the way he responds to words straight man routine. Oh, yeah. It's just... There's it, a tense to name the frog. It all works. Every time you cut away it from him and you cut back to him, you're never disappointed. Or when they cut away and it looks like he has wandered off yet again. <laughs> just delightful uses of jump cuts there. In order to make this more adorable, uh, Mikhail based Gregory on his own son. So he's just projecting all the feelings he has for his boy onto this Gregory character. Which, you know, works, because the whole time you're like, I need to protect this precious little babe in the woods. And he's like, nah, I'm going to leave the show here. <laughs> I mean, everyone in the voice cast really knocks it out, but yeah, Beatrice's uh, character arc is probably the most dynamic. I mean, Word has the thing where he's just overcoming his reservations and allowing himself to be himself. And I guess that is the central arc of the series, because he's the anchor of anybody is and you know there's a part where he's like nervous about that cute girl he likes and the other guy who's into her and he thinks that like oh he's he's so together i can't compete with him and Jason. you see him and he's just some he's just some guy with 
the most annoying voice ever. Jason Thunderburger. Yeah, Jason Thunderburger. He's he's got this little dweeby voice. Yeah. You could you're okay, Wart. You can you got a shot. Yeah, and I mean the whole time she's just like, Oh, you are at this party? I was just asking about you. And you're like, dude, take a hint, ask her out. Well, teenage boys can be pretty dense. She was being so direct. You can be really, really direct. Um, it's just a lot of teenage boys are because, you know, I was one, pretty insecure about that. And now uh, I've talked about this once or twice before with people, but um it can be hard when someone is talking to you directly and being nice to assume that they're interested in you in that way because your raging hormones are telling you that everybody who isn't absolutely aloof and distant to you <laughs> has some kind of reason to, for, for, for talking to you that way. It's kind of a dude thing because, I don't know, men don't form camaraderie the same way that women are expected to in socialization and the like. There's this degree of aggressive competitiveness between male friendships that's probably one of the reasons uh, that informed why I never really did that. Yeah, well, female friendships are wonderful, but they can get really competitive, too. But, like, the, the girls that were, like, trying to get him to ask her out before Jason did, I'm like, that's one of those things where it's like, no, if her friends are like, do go for it, like, they're not being subtle. Yeah, but I get why Word still didn't pick up those obvious-ass signals, because, you know, between his crippling self-doubt and the thundering hormones, it can be like, I'm reading too much into this smile she gave me. I should not take it to heart. What if I make another fool of myself? What if I make her super uncomfortable? I don't want to be one of those guys. I mean, I guess... Um, like, I can see where you're coming from. I also think that his mom getting married to another man plays into it, too. He seemed to be super mistrusting. He also is resentful t towards Gregory throughout the adventure, at least partially informed by that. Yep, yep. Yeah, moving on, our biggest veteran here is Christopher Lloyd as the woodsman. He does so good! I wonder if they did all of his stuff just, like, all at the same time and then did everything else, like, around that. Oh, I, I bet he banged his part out in an afternoon, but... I, I'm not even sure if I could tell if Lloyd's performance is good or bad because he's just been one of those beloved character actors who's been in a whole bunch of things that I've loved since I was a small child. So just hearing his voice in any context is enough for me. I mean, that's fair. But, like, I don't know. Like, from watching it over and over again, I can tell you that I don't get tired of it. I just don't. It's so good. I mean, in his character arc, when he realizes that, you know, he was feeding the lost souls into the beast's lantern, you know, at his bidding because he thought that the spirit of his daughter was trapped inside and that she'd die otherwise. And it, from a kid that he dissed by being like, don't be stupid. Like, the first conversation he has with Wirt is just like, that's your brother, take care of him, don't be stupid. Yeah, yeah, but when he realizes that it's the beast spirit in the lantern, the beast had tricked him. Just that, that, that whole thing. Lloyd really sticks the landing there. Oh, absolutely. Alright, and uh, then we have Jack Jones as Greg's frog. Not only is he the singing voice, he did the croakies. Oh, really? <laughs> I like that. That's very sweet. Yeah, he's an experienced Americana and musician, and yeah, the frog song. You like the frog song. Oh, yeah, and also the frogs are just adorable. Though every time I get weirdly squeamish about the tadpoles, I'm just like, you're killing the babies! <laughs> 
Yeah, I know. It's, it's a bummer. I mean, you, frogs like th hundreds and thousands of tadpoles because only some of them are going to make it. But even when you're a little kid and you learn that, you're like, no, all the tadpoles should make it. They all should make it, and we should be overrun by frogs. But also, too, like, tadpoles shouldn't get stepped on. You know, what, what drove me nuts as a kid watching nature documentaries is, like, watching the baby turtles trying to get to the water. Like, no seagull, you stay away. Oh, and then, like, too, though, like, you're just like, I want all of you to go into the ocean. And then I'm like, but there's only so much food for them there. Ah! It hurts. And then we have Samuel Raimi as the Beast. As I mentioned already, he is largely uh, known for his contributions to the opera. He's a bass uh, singer. You don't say! <laughs> So they found a bass singer who is available, and he nailed it. He is scary as hell. He is, but Ryan, they got, like, a professional opera singer to go la, la, la. <laughs> and that makes me so happy now. Not only that, but a whole bunch of Gen Z kids probably had nightmares when they were in their single digits. Oh, it's so good. Scary-ass motherfucker. <laughs> And, like, he's just eyes for most of it. It's, it's just delightful. Yeah, you only see a little bit of flash of, you know, the body parts of other people that he has cast upon himself as he's consumed the things fed into the lantern. Alright, Over the Garden Wall was previewed at San Diego Comic-Con and New York Comic-Con shortly before its network premiere. It did premiere on November 3rd, 2014 on Cartoon Network and ran for the next five consecutive nights. The positions of the moon on the show correspond to the nights the episodes aired. That's nuts! I love it! I figured you would, that's why I wrote it down. <laughs> it was a rating success, consistently drawing over a million viewers for each episode, and the reviews were largely positive, praising its visual invention, spooky atmosphere, and willingness to diverge from Cartoon Network's more in-your-face approach to uh, animation. This is not Teen Titans Go! I, and it like it was really delightful to see something that was kind of like sepia toned and not like pastel or like um, like electric day glow neon colors. I mean, nothing wrong with those things, but it doesn't have to be everything. It's just it was the first time I had seen something that wasn't in so long that wasn't like the Disney Animal Robin Hood movie, and I was like, ooh. The criticisms that I did come across were largely for it for being too folksy and twee for its own good. What's twee? Twee means like too precious. Oh, get out of your own butt. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and most of those are just like measured criticisms and reviews that were overall positive. But yeah, some people think that uh, something that is a, a little too sweet and innocent is twee. That tends to be the word used in a uh, negative connotation. I don't, I, I don't understand why somebody would be uncomfortable with something that can be wholesome, but, it, I mean, I guess to each his own. Sometimes it could be a little too saccharine and diabetic. Like, I like Zoe Deschanel in small doses. Oh, I can watch New Girl over and over and over again. All right. <laughs> uh, it got nominated for two Annies for uh, television directing and also best TV show. It did not win. It did win a Rubin for TV animation. And it won two Emmys for Outstanding Animated Program and Outstanding Individual Achievement in Animation. That one went to Nick Cross. Which one was Nick Cross again? Uh, Nick Cross was the storyboard supervisor. Okay, that's fair. Uh, it also won Best Animated Feature at the Ottawa International Animation Festival. And they were correct. 
Over the Garden Wall was spun off into comics. Boom, who had published comics for regular show, Adventure Time, Steven Universe, and other Cartoon Network programs, put out an Over the Garden Wall one-shot on November 5th of 2014. It was written by McHale and illustrated by uh, Over the Garden Wall writer and storyboard artist Jim Campbell. It takes place in between episodes. The one-shot sold well, leading to a 2015 sequel miniseries, also written by McHale and illustrated by uh, Campbell. Uh, and this dovetailed into an ongoing series in 2016. Campbell stuck around for that, but other writers and artists segged in and out. All these stories took place before and after the show. Certain issues followed the woodsman's daughter, Anna, and how she got lost in the unknown to begin with. So she really wasn't the... Um... The girl at the end of the movie that, or um, she really wasn't Auntie Whisper's charge then. Uh, no. Huh. After the uh, ongoing series uh, ended, a bunch of standalone original graphic novels were issued throughout 2018 and 2019. The most recent one came out on October 21st of 2020. So I haven't read a single one of these for some of that's just like, the show's amazing and I want everyone to watch it. I'm like, really? I'm going to have to buy some stuff. I think most of them are on library reading apps and such. Uh, pretty much everything on Boom is on Comixology Unlimited. So if you have an Amazon Prime subscription, you can download it for free on your device. Well, okay. Well, that's going to happen then. Yes. After Over the Garden Wall, Cross would go on to work on Uncle Grandpa, Infinity yes. Train, Tig and Seek, and the cancelled Bone film. McHale was quiet for a little while, but he wrote the screenplay for the Pinocchio film that has been directed by Guillermo del Toro and is coming out next month. Yeah, yeah, there's a stop-motion animated Pinocchio movie that's coming out soon. No, I know. I've seen, like, I've seen some stuff online, and I've been like, well, I'm avoiding the fuck out of that. I'm not watching Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio. I've read parts of that book. The book's messed up enough. I can't, I can't do another Pan's Labyrinth. Like, my soul just can't handle that. But it's Pan's Labyrinth crossed with Over the Garden Wall. Just twice as much. I know. Now I have to, like, start emotionally preparing myself and, like, working on myself for this movie. You ruined sea caves for me. You should be ruined for everyone. But, um, ugh. All right, and with that, it's time for themes. Uh, the first thing I wrote down was Old Weird America. Yay! <laughs> uh, Over the Garden Wall romanticizes a lot of the cultural touchstones of Gilded Age America, especially its commercial art and music. You know, we talked about on previous episodes, the ones on Richard Matheson's Twilight Zone episodes, uh, The Wizard of Oz and Summerstock, about how there was an intense nostalgia for the 1890s throughout the middle of the 20th century. And yeah, it touches upon a lot of that, but also the immediate aftermath, like, you know, the periods leading up up to uh, World War One and also bits from the 20s and so on. It isn't just fixed in the 1890s, but that does seem to dominate. All I can think of is just pumpkin heads and like watercolor art deco, but I'm like, yeah! <laughs> I'm yeah, trying to visualize it. And it's definitely not like the official accepted uh, museum art stuff of it. You know, there's no German expressionism here. There's no impressionism. It's all like commercial art, you know, Grandma Moses. Yeah, um, it's like the, you know, you were, I think you hit the nail on the head when you were talking about like the, like the vintage like Halloween decorations and cards. And you know, the reason that specific period in American history got romanticized so much and 
like you know the the 30s and the 40s and even into the 50s is not just the usual wistful remembrances of lost childhood but you know after two world wars this era was seen as a simpler more innocent time at least for america and like most bits of nostalgia this is not exactly true the late 19th century was marked by imperialism uh, the pains of industrialization you know wobblies getting beaten by the pinkertons and child labor and all that led to not to mention jim crow yeah i just um mm. yeah but even all that factored in and even after the passage of time we still find lots of people who look at this period with rose-colored glasses and it is curious to think about why that could be like why would we be nostalgic for the nostalgia of our great-grandparents this period that is no longer in living memory and hasn't been for decades because we're so far out of touch with it that it just feels safer and softer that could be it although once again if you look at the late 19th and very early 20th century that we're still in the very beginnings of mass media there are still lots of elements of it that are less factory assembled and events handmade craft like the the creepy angel baby head scene where they're like singing on clouds and stuff it does look like it's watercolors yeah, and even when you're looking at like mass-produced commercial art, there is this sort of gilded handmade quality to it nonetheless. It feels like human beings put time and effort into it, and it wasn't just some bland, homogenized plastic thing that's being plastered everywhere. Coca-Cola was around at this period, but it wasn't on every billboard and plastered on every um, highway underpass. There weren't even highway underpasses yet. We hadn't gotten to that point. And then immediately my brain goes to Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Let's move away from that Lloyd, though. Yeah, and this is also a period where mass media was still in its infancy, which meant that lots of things still had regional flavor and in a lot of ways were unique and idiosyncratic still. Like, we didn't have, this is the factory-assembled pop star that we have watered down to the point where they'll be accessible to everybody no matter where they're from. You know, you still had, this is the New England aesthetic, this is the Southern aesthetic, this is the Midwest, this is California. Why am I getting flashbacks to that really bad horror movie? movie we watched together. You're gonna have to narrow it down better than that. Ah, uh, the one with the dogs that were covered in wigs. Oh, oh, the killer shrews. I, it feels like there was a similar, um, there was a similar point in that one. Oh yeah, that's when I was talking about regional films. Okay, well there you go. Yeah, those were, those were made for like a very specific target market and not intended to go outside of it. And yeah, there was definitely a lot more of that 150 years ago. You don't say. <laughs> hard to bring things together when we only had the railroad. Uh, yeah, that brought me to, like, concepts like the moldy fig. Uh, don't know that one. You have to elaborate. Thanks for teeing me up for that. <laughs> All right, moldy fig is also an antiquated term. Originally, it was used to describe uh, people in the 1950s who hated that newfangled bebop jazz that Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker and Thelonious Monk were doing. They only liked, you know, the old-fashioned stuff, the stuff that Duke Ellington and Louis Armstrong was at. So, like, any form of music that came out after World War II was garbage. So that's, like, every generation, though? Yeah. Moldy Fig transcended the jazz definition and just, just sort of became a shorthand for somebody who's nostalgic for their parents' childhood. Okay, okay. And that brought around, like, the original definition of hipster. Because hipster is another one of those words that became very amorphous. I kind of like Moldy Fig better than hipster, though. 
One yeah. of them sounds like underpants and one of them does not. Hipster is slightly different. Essentially, like those aforementioned jazz musicians who are doing the bebop, you know, your Dizzy Gillespie and Thelonious Monk and Miles Davis and those guys, they'd noticed that upper middle class white people from the suburbs were showing up and hanging out and trying to internalize the jazz, but they came from a different background and even though they kind of leaned left politically, they were achingly tryhards and they were just trying to be hip. Uh, they usually used it to describe the B generation people, you know, your Jack Kerouacs and Allen Ginsbergs. Yeah. And it was like, yeah, you're trying to appropriate our culture with that, and you're making way more money doing it than we are. Trying to be hip, fucking hipster. But I love Ginsberg. He was so sweet, though. He really was trying. <laughs> Sorry. We can keep going on. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually the hipsters became the moldy figs. I mean, I don't think hipster culture is inherently evil. It's the way I'm set up. I have more hipster qualities than I'm willing to admit to myself. But there are cool hipsters. Dave Ran Ronk was pretty cool. I don't know who that is. Did you see Inside Llewellyn Davis? Yes. That is Dave Van Ronk. They changed oh. his name to Llewellyn Davis. Okay, thank you. That's a good movie, but also, he. I just worry about that cat. Alright, moving on. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, this brings me to my next point, which is uh, the atomization of culture. Uh, you know, when I mentioned in the intro that Over the Garden Wall is an example, a very early example of what happens when, you know, you started giving the reins over to millennial creatives and allowing them to just sort of do their own thing, you know, once they hit their early 30s, which, you know, uh, Mikhail, I, I keep mentioning, he, he is currently, as of this recording, 38 years old. I mean, I think that um, I'm not really surprised by that news because, like, everything that you mentioned that's been connected to him or his team, I'm like, yes, all of that. I love all of that, except for Uncle Grandpa. Yeah, so Over the Garden Wall is created by people our age. Yeah, a big surprise that we're, like, all into it. Yeah, and uh, one thing that defines millennials is that, at least for middle-class millennials in the United States, is that we were the first generation that was swept into internet culture, and a big part of internet culture is the atomization of culture. Like, previous generations in the 20th century, they had the three channels on TV, they had whatever was playing at the local theater, they had a couple of radio stations, and that was it. That meant that they were only presented with things that were selected and curated specifically for them. There was a lot less choice, whereas in the advent of, like, social media and streaming platforms, if you are curious about, say, Sam Cooke, you don't have to, like, go digging through used record stores to find things. You can just type in Sam Cooke's name and then instantly listen to absolutely everything the man ever commercially released all at once. I think it's kind of fun though because we also grew up with like, we cut our teeth with like LimeWire so like we also had to deal with somebody not realizing that somebody wasn't Sam Cooke and then you're like this Sam Cooke song's great! And now like as an adult you're trying to find it and then you find out that that wasn't him at all. Yeah, that's happened a few times. So many people tried to sell me that bluegrass cover of Gin and Juice as different names. And it's like, it's the Grateful Dead. It's Fish. It doesn't even sound like... It's Allison Krauss in Union Station. <laughs> The Grateful Dead. I know. But I mean, you know, if you're a 14 year old in 2002, what do you, you don't know any better. I guess. I guess. But now it's a lot easier to be a nine-year-old kid who's super into 1920s jazz. When our nephew Toby was five, I convinced him that Bob Dylan was in fact like a family friend. I don't know how I did it. I didn't do it on purpose. 
but he used to say my friend Bob Dylan, and he listened to like almost all of the discography. He was so into Bob Dylan. Yeah, it's, it's a lot easier to do this if you have a Wi-Fi connection. It's much more difficult to be a hipster. That being said, once again, getting back around, it's, it's inaccessible to everybody. The internet is just kind of like something that's in the ether for someone in my background that's not accessible to everybody. Like, But it, it is accessible to a lot of people. I think several billion last time I read. I mean, I'm definitely one of those suckers that's like, the internet connects us more than it separates us. Yeah, I'm not sure if that's true. It could be isolating as well as something that brings people together. That being said, I do think that the uh, Gen Z kids are going to handle it a lot better than we did because it's just one of those things that's just been always there while they were alive, so it's not fascinating to them. It's going to be how we reacted to, like, television or the phone. I mean, hopefully. I am one of those... I also worry about, like, the addictive properties of it at the same time. Yeah, there is a lot of elements of the internet where it's just like, oh, um, now it's owned by two companies and they are putting a lot of effort into squeezing all of the data out of us as they can while making everything less fun, but also at the same time something that we can't stop clicking at. Right? Like the whole, like the fact that pinhole entered our language as like a, a, a descriptor for spending too much time on Pinterest. I'm like, oh, I'm curious to see how that changes. I'm under the impression that loot crates are just going to make kids more cynical. Well, hopefully, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the best case scenario for loot crates <laughs> as a cultural influence. Uh, but yeah, the, the last point I wanted to bring up is Memento Mori, because of course. Yay! Oh my gosh, the goth in me is so happy. Let's do it. And Over the Garden Wall is acutely fixated on mortality, which is unusual for an American children's show, especially in the 21st century. And it's so cute about it! Yeah, it definitely brings about, like, a Grimm Brothers fairy tale aspect of it, especially on that, um, Pottersfield dance. It's called Pottsville, not Pottersfield, but, you know, you get the idea. I was, I felt like such a dummy because it was this time around that I'm like, oh my god, it's a Pottersfield. And he's like, join our dance. I'm like, no. Well, you'll be back. Right? This like, why are you digging holes? Maybe it's to bury ourselves in. It's like, oh, they're, they're, because it's a pot. Yep, no, I got there. I, like, 10 <laughs> watches, but I got there. The earlier pitches involved an overt statement that the brothers were in limbo, with the beast trying not to consume their souls in the lantern, but lead them home because it wasn't their time yet. So the reason he was chasing them is because he wanted to bring them back to life. Oh, I love that. Um, the frogs, too, make a lot of sense because, like, in a bunch of, like, early, like, Christian mythos and, and art, you can see frogs with the um, bodies to try to, like, symbolize, like, the decay and stuff. And that's for people that are in limbo. Like, that's back when you had to pray your way out. Yeah, that makes sense, the way the frogs are sinking into the mud. I don't know if that was a deliberate gesture or not. If you were talking, you were talking about the art, though, that they were pulling from, and that's where that comes from. Yeah, yeah, so it probably was a deliberate gesture. But um, it brings me back to an interview I read with, um, this is a millennial touchstone, Jonathan Davis, the lead singer of Korn. Keep going. <laughs> I know, this is a bit left field, but... I was surprised by it because he seemed like a genuinely like down-to-earth, thoughtful, introspective man, which is not the impression you get off Corn Records, I... where he's like doing terrible scat singing and bagpipes. <laughs> How does one do bagpipes? Well, he does it. But yeah, one thing he mentioned is that they asked him is that before he became famous, he was a mortician, like when he was a teenager. I knew that fact, but because of, I, I'm a fan of Ask a Mortician. 
And they asked him about that experience and how it shaped him. And he said that it was a perpetual reminder that we all end up on a slab eventually because he saw all sorts of people, lots of old people, obviously, but, you know, young people, middle-aged people, people who suffered accidents, people who um, dropped dead because of some medical condition they had no idea about, all that stuff. And it made him think and keep thinking, even now that he's like a 50-something rock star, that a lot of cultures, particularly American cultures, culture does everything that it can to avoid confronting this immutable unavoidable fact and that he didn't want to be like that and he thinks that keeping this frame in mind has made him live his life better i wholeheartedly agree with that i'm a big fan of the death positivity movement and yeah you've listened to the ask a mortician podcast which is kind of the spearhead for that sort of deal but like anybody that you talk to about it like everybody has like really honest curious like death questions so like whenever anybody like knows that i read a little bit on it and like listen even our mother has asked me like questions and like i, lo- I love guiding people to ask a mortician because she makes it very relatable all right well that's everything in my notes there uh, anything about Over the Garden Wall that you'd like to bring up that we haven't touched upon yet? I mean, surprise, surprise, I love that it's all about family and, like, learning and, like, discovering that your relatives are also people, too. I remember when I started noticing that, like, our younger sister Sarah was, like, a person and, like, had her own, like, feelings. I remember when I had, like, that breakthrough moment with you. I remember when I had it with Sylvan. It's one of those just, like, lovely, like, self-discovery things. I love coming across it in stories. I I love Wirt and and Gregory's relationship and, like, how it evolves. Yeah, according to this piece on um, infant psychology that I read, in general, it takes about eight months for an infant to figure out that mommy is a person, too, and might have needs that conflict with mine. I mean, I I get that to a degree, but, like, I definitely feel like I, I stumbled upon that, like, later, at least with the siblings. Well, I think there's a difference between, like, understanding that the outside entity is an outside entity and then just sort of, like, contextualizing and pontificating upon, like, oh, if I have these feelings, then that means everyone else does, too. Right? And it's not, like, this annoying force that's in my life that's taking away all the stuff that I had wanted. I mean, granted, it's hard not to feel that there are a lot of people in positions of power who never had that revelation. Well, I always assume that that's more like, um, you know, it's not my problem, not like it's not a thing that occurs. I don't know. I mean, you're probably right, but the cynical part of me is thinking, I was like, oh, it doesn't even occur to these people that uh, what they do is hurting others. I feel like that's less cynical and that's more hopeful because then it's like a, they might they might figure it out someday, whereas mine's like, oh, no, I think they wholeheartedly know. Yours is, uh, yours is more hopeful. Let's lean with yours. I'm less bleak. Holy <laughs> shit. Right. I'm just chipper. All right, on, on that note, thanks for listening, everybody. Jo- join us next time. <laughs> <laughs>